Secret Satan. A seasonal murder mystery in 24 episodes. Written by Tobias Sturt and read by John Millington. Chapter 19. I wonder if you remember, way back at the start of this, that I promised that this was going to be a fair play murder mystery. I also wonder how quickly you started to realise that I wasn't playing fair. Rule 8 of Father Ronald Knox's Ten Commandments for so-called fair play murder mysteries states, The detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. You may have noticed that I broke this rule over the business with the freelance passes being used on the security gates. I told you I was talking to Giuseppe in security, but I didn't tell you why. In my defence, while that clue was the clincher for me, I didn't actually need it. And also, the cleaning, scrutiny and interpretation of data is extremely tedious for the person doing it, let alone an audience hearing about it. But I've also not played fair in a larger sense. In fact, my promise to play fair was, in itself... A misleading clue. It probably led you to believe that you were listening to a murder mystery, which you were for about half of it, but then abruptly, halfway through, you found out who the murderer was and everything just kind of stopped. Of course, I did that little bit of narrative legerdemain for dramatic purposes. It's a nice little twist. You thought you were getting a detective story and now it's unexpectedly inverted itself and become a heist story. Instead of the execution and investigation of a crime, we're now going to be planning and staging one. Sort of. Not a bad crime, not as bad as the one that's already been committed, even though we all seem to have agreed that that wasn't as bad as it initially appeared. Heists are even less fair play than detective stories. They pretend to be more, but they are deceiving, which they should be, of course. A detective story appears to lay out all the clues but the pleasure usually lies in the peculiar nature of the detective that allows them, and only them, to interpret the clues correctly. Sherlock Holmes's uncanny ability to accept the improbable as fact once he has ruled out the impossible, Father Brown's unique insight into human nature, Charlie Cale's ability to tell when someone is lying. Heists do something similar, except there it's thieves and their peculiar ability to lie. We, the audience, watch them assemble their team of all the talents, We watch them lay out their plan and practice their moves, and then we discover we have been misled, as either the writer or the criminals elaborate and deceive and double-cross, and like the detective revealing the solution, something dazzlingly surprising unfolds. We, the audience, have been the victims of a heist too. Which is all to say, I'm going to look like I'm continuing playing fair with you in the next few chapters, and I will again be misdirecting for your own amusement and enjoyment. There, that's a sort of fair play. So, here we are, the heist. The gang has got back together for one more job, trying to divert suspicion from us, one of whom actually killed the victim, Tony Flint, by making someone else look incredibly shady. That someone being our largely unpleasant and universally disliked boss, Richard Balls. I mean, wouldn't you? But therein lies our problem. Balls already knows we don't like or trust him and he doesn't like or trust us, which is one of the main reasons we don't like or trust him, ironically. And it gets worse because the late Tony Flint coded a dead man's switch into the Christmas email system we've been developing for Richard Balls, meaning that he's firing off posthumous emails accusing someone on the team of killing him. And one of these has been sent to Richard Balls, 
which means that he doesn't just mistrust us in a general sense, but also in a very specific and, and this is important, valid sense. He thinks one of us might be a killer, and he's right. So how do we cast suspicion on someone who's already paranoid and on the lookout for someone scheming against him? I'm a great believer in creative judo. When you run up against a problem with a project, try and figure out how you can use that problem to solve itself. Use the weight of your difficulties against them. In this case, how do you plot against a suspicious person? You use their own suspicion against them. You make them suspicious in the wrong way against the wrong person. You just have to find the way in. And here's where I came in as a newly minted anti-detective, the criminal genius, the heist meister. Previously, Richard Ball's only ally on the team had been Tony Flint. This is why he was particularly paranoid about us all. Without Tony, he had no one in the office to rely on. He couldn't even remember Radu's name, and I'm not even sure he knew Sue worked for him. He found the designers, Ned and Lem, confusing and alarming with their weird attitudes and inexplicable jobs. Edie was simply too clever and sharp, especially for a woman, and most irritatingly to him, he knew everyone thought Ali was a much better boss than him, and he was never going to forgive her for that. There was just one person on the team who wasn't managed by Ali, didn't appear to be a complete weirdo, and most importantly represented absolutely no threat to his position as big swinging Richard Balls about the office. Me. After all, hadn't he already confided in me in his own unpleasant way? All that talk of a challenging situation, asking for maximum situational awareness. Well, it was time to start sharing some awareness with him and make the situation as challenging as we could. So in the interest of fair play, here's the plan. I was going to worm my way in with balls. I do not like that sentence. And divert his suspicion onto someone else. We would then ratchet up that paranoia hopefully causing Balls to behave in such an increasingly unhinged and bizarre way as might draw the attention of, say, HR. Although HR being what they are, we might have to help them concentrate. There, that's our heist. Imagine me drawing that plan out on a blackboard in an abandoned warehouse. Yes, I'm being played by George Clooney in this scene. Look, I'm writing this. I get to indulge myself. I'll leave you with one mystery, at least. Who, exactly we were going to focus Richard Ball's suspicion on. To be honest, it's not much of a cliffhanger, because A, I think it's obvious really, there's only one member of the team it could be, if you think about it, and B, I'm going to have to reveal it right at the start of the next episode, because that's when I'm going to tell Balls. It's a victim I still feel incredibly guilty about, to be honest, even if we didn't have a great deal of choice, and actually that the end result kind of validated our selection, but still... It felt, and it still does feel, mean. Anyway, you'll see. Incidentally, Ronald Knox's fifth commandment was no Chinaman must feature in the story. And I've abided by that one. Sue's parents are Korean. You have been listening to Secret Satan. A workplace mystery presentation in 24 slides, written by Tobias Sturt and read by John Millington. Our music is Holiday Weasel by Kevin MacLeod from filmmusic.io and our illustrations are by Jamie Lenman, who you can find at jamielenman.com. Our Christmas stories are on Spotify, YouTube and Substack and you can find links to all of these on our website, christmasstories.co.uk. 
or you can subscribe on your podcast app. Wherever you listen, please take time to rate and review and make sure you don't miss the next episode of Secret Satan. Secret Satan.